This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Some time ago, I got a, a message from a friend of mine who I've known for a, a, a long, long time, a gentleman by the name of Frank Jenkinson, who we've had on the program talking about the, I guess, what you would call historical photographs he took of one of my all-time favorite bands, Killing Joke. And the message that uh, Frank said to me was, there's a new book that you need to see by a fellow by the name of Chris Bryans. He said, this book is just jam-packed full of photographs and information and quotes about Killing Joke. I think you should see this. So he put me in touch with Chris Bryans, and Chris Bryans very kindly sent me a copy of this fabulous book, which I'm holding up now. For those of you that see this on, on video, will see that this is a massive, great, big, huge book, over 300 pages, and it's titled A Prophecy Fulfilled, and the subtitle is Pioneers and Revelations. And Chris Bryan is with me. Chris Bryan, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks very much for inviting me and having me on the show. So, this huge, massive, great big <laughs> tribute to a band that um, I've pioneered for an awful long time, since the very, very beginning. You put out this book. It's basically, I would say, it's a, it's a tribute. Well, how would you describe this book, Chris? Yes, I would say so, um, because the... The, the thing about the band was that they were not very well covered in terms of in terms of in-depth analysis. And I think that was both principally because the band wanted it that way, because they've always coveted that sense of mystery about the band. Yes. Unless, you know, and you know, giving people their impression of what of how life could be, but you don't want to go behind the curtain too much yes. and find out there are too many secrets because like I, did, I think they've always fought shy of that. And I thought that would always be the case. And then I heard, just it was just on the grapevine it was, it was only a, a murmur going round that they'd agreed to do an officially sanctioned book. And wow. I thought, well, that's, you know, that's not out of my league, but there'll be a, a long waiting list of people wanting to do that with probably a better CV, a more impressive CV than mine. But it came that the publisher, the would-be publisher of the book, got in touch with me and he'd heard that I was a big fan and I'd worked on quite a few books. And then it, it developed from there, really. And I had to pinch myself quite a few times during the process that it was actually happening. So let's talk about you for a moment, Chris. As you just said, you were approached about doing this book, but you'd already been involved with a number of books beforehand. So what, let's just give a little sort of the background to, to Chris Bryans. Okay. In terms of books, yeah, for about the last... 20 years, I've been working on a selection of books, usually with the same um, same publisher. There were a series that was very popular over here, I'm not sure over stateside, but it was a series of books that always started with 1001, da-da-da. Uh -huh. And I worked on the 1001 albums to hear before you die, yes. 1001 uh, singles to hear before you buy songs, whatever. And um, so I got quite involved with that, which was great fun. Yes. It was mostly think pieces, you know, so you weren't getting involved with the interviewing side of the artists. It was just 500 words on a certain fabulous album or a certain fabulous song, which was great fun. But I just thought, 
I wasn't really getting down to the nitty gritty of things and actually getting, you know, one on one with people. Um, and then when this came up, when I asked about it, and they said, I said, what's the actual concept going to be? And it described to me, I thought it was 50% what I wanted to do, because I'd be working with the fan base. But I didn't want to be just sat there waiting for all these accounts, brilliant though they are, of course, and they make up a lot of the book. Um, but just uh, the fans uh, deluging me with accounts. I thought, well, if the book was going to have a proper structure, then surely if I can get hold of the members of the band, um, then it would have a spine running right through it. So as we move through the albums, I tried to have uh, sections at the front and the back that were just devoted to the band themselves and then spreading the rest of the interviews that I've done with them throughout. So it meant that as you got to the end of each chapter of the start, there was always sort of like an anchor in place and it'll be the band talking about where they were at that time or where they'd got to. And I sold that to the publisher. I said, it'll make a much better book. Yes. And, um, he said, yes, well, let, if you can do it, let's go for it because we have got access to the guys themselves. That is terrific, the way that came about. So talk to me about interviewing the, the members of Killing Joke, because over the years, there's been a lot of mystery and a lot of, so mm. as you say, there's been a lot of sort of almost hiding away from publicity about yes. the band. And I mean, I go back a long ways remembering about the very early days when newspaper writer, well, the music press articles gave this very slanted view of music express, new music express, melody maker, etc., gave yeah. these very slanted views, kind of raving at one point, but also talking about drugs and just very not really giving you a really honest, in my opinion, um, story about the band. So there was a kind of vague, sort of a haziness about the band, and because I knew Brian so well. Mm. I, I remember that that wasn't exactly not deliberate. It was kind <laughs> of like it was all part of the mystique. Yeah. So yeah. the band has changed, not completely changed lineup, but over the years, members have come and gone. And mm. I'm wondering about that for you in, in getting interviews and, and, and collating all this information, how important that was for you to document the, the sort of comings and goings of, of Killing Joke. Yes, it was really because... You know, um, especially for someone like Paul Raven, yes. who was in, he was in, out, and then, but he was so much a, a huge part of the band and a huge part of, I thought, opening up a bit because he was, he was much more, you know, when the internet became a thing, he was much more proactive with exchanging views with people on, you know, early message boards. That was very valued. And I think that opened the band up to them. And I don't know whether this is true, but it might have made the other members think, well, you know, it's, it's something to be had here, open ourselves a, a little bit. And I think that maybe that's just been a continuing process. And then when this opportunity came around, I'm not saying it was easy to get them on the phone and easy to do Zoom calls with them, because it wasn't. Um, but they did give their time. And when I finally got them, they were extremely open, which, you know, they were telling me things that, that um, I'd heard in one form or another from elsewhere, but they went into into greater detail. Yes. And I was very grateful for that because I thought it might be one of those ones where, you know, I'm, I know no one tells Killing Joke what to do, but if management had said, look, you're obligated to this, I could have got no, yes, no, yes, no answers, but I didn't. They were very fulsome and I was much appreciated for that. 
I want to get into this and talk about your conversations that you had with the individual members. It, it, it must have been for you knowing full well that the band had a reputation for not not being very how do I put this politely? Not very <laughs> cooperative with yeah. with interviewers. So did you go into this, Chris, thinking that you were interviewing more than you were just basically just collating some information? How did you go about it? Yes, well, one part of it, the, the, the uh, fan part of it, sort of looked after itself. Yes. Just because people just got in touch immediately. Then there was a two-layer thing, really. I had... Um, I had uh, interview set up with all the band but I left them till slightly later in the operation uh, which was a, I wouldn't do that again actually I would I would bag those first because then I would I would have the reassurance that they're in the bag but then I spent a lot of time going after people who were contemporaries of the band or yes. admirers things like that I thought because I really wanted to work on that and get a real sort of melting pot and it'd be very colourful hopefully because you know they'd have stories to tell but from a different angle. So you get fans from one angle, contemporaries from another, and then the chaps themselves. Yes. But when I sat down with the chaps, um, it was, I'll tell you what was, what was funny to me was that when I got in contact with all of them, all of them wanted to get, all of them wanted to get in contact via different means. Ah. Which just showed to me that they're all, you know, they, everyone says they are massively individuals. Yes. And very different to each other. So, Big Paul just wanted to do it via um, via email. Yes. Um, Geordie just wanted to do a phone call. Youth wanted to do Zoom. And then Jazz, <laughs> Jazz when I think a gun was pointed at his head, and they just <laughs> sat him down in front of a screen and said, you know, right. just talk for two hours. So, yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny you're talking about the contemporaries, because I, I was just, before we, we started chatting here on Zoom, I was just flipping through the book, and I was just focused in for a moment on a quote from Kirk Brandon, an artist mm. that I've always admired and, and uh, liked of Theatre of Hate and Spear of Destiny, who's back on the road, by the way, has been yes, touring yes. around the UK and, uh, and and very good too, a band that I just say, great, great artist. But he's talking about the early days as well. He's talking about supporting Killing Joke in one of the quotes that you have from Kirk. And it's just interesting reading these things uh, uh, that were happening at the time. And I, I love the, the fact that you've got those those contemporary quotes in, in the book. That's what makes it very, very interesting indeed. Do like that. Going to remind my listeners, if you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Bryans. He has a book which is... If you're a fan of Killing Joke, you're just going to absolutely want to get this. Even if you're not a fan of Killing Joke, this is a fabulous book. Make a good Christmas present, this one. <laughs> a Prophecy Fulfilled is the title. It's jam-packed, full of archival photographs and lots and lots of quotes from all kinds of people, the band themselves and different people over, over the years. We touched on, and I want to. there's so many different areas we can go into here. I want to go back to to the to the beginnings of of, um, of killing joke for you you were you aware of the band i mean i don't i you know don't want to get into into what you were listening to at a certain period of time but the band when they first came together as you as you document in the book it, it wasn't sort of something that everybody thought was going to be a huge big success mm -hmm. or, or you know there was a sort of a lot of trial and tribulation so to speak 
but there was something very different about the band uh, from my perspective, of course, knowing knowing Brian Taylor so well and Adam mm-hmm. Morris uh, uh, and some of the, and, and and Frank and Dick and some of those other people, to me there was always something sort of was absolutely determined. I mean, the destiny destiny was going to be yes. that they were going to be a very different band and it was going to be unlike anything else. Was that coming across to you with your interviews? Yes, definitely. I think, um, I mean, I think youth especially was very surprised that, you know, they they became a thing very, very quickly. He thought they would definitely be noticed, but he wasn't quite sure that it would be embraced, especially in a live setting. Um, But I think that's where they worked best. I mean, the recorded music is fabulous, but I think it was also, there was that mystery that we've we've both mentioned, but also there was a... Heaven knows how this happened, but they seem to emerge as a fully formed band. Yes. They weren't there, and then they were there. And then it's like Peely allegedly said that he thought when he received, um, or when about, well, I think when they did the first. They did the uh, first. I think Peely was saying that he he thought it was a put-on that someone had given him um, a record by an established band. Yes, not a new band. He said, "How can this band be so professional?" But over and above that, for me, just to put a, a bit of personal context in there, you know, I was, I was, I was only when it, when that uh, music was coming out. I was twelve or thirteen. Yes, thankfully, like a lot of people do, I had an older brother, and uh, he was uh, he had the first album. Um, so the last person he wanted in his in his bedroom at our uh, familial house was me in there with his mates. <laughs> yes, so I had to listen yes. to it outside the room. Uh, yes, but yes. Still, yes. it was played at such loud volume that I just couldn't resist it, you know. So out went all me records by the police and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, on. yeah. This yeah. is something massively different. Yes. And together with that, they seem to have, uh, as well as being a fully formed band, they seem to have a fully formed philosophy as well. You know, it's just like this is this is an alternative way to think about things, an alternative way to live. You know, things like that. And it was just yes. that, it just seemed a whole package that was just irresistible. And then when you put the music on, it was just yes, this makes a lot of sense. This. I mean, I was too young to work out what it was all about, but I knew that I needed to to persevere with this, whatever. Yes, uh, such a good point, Chris. I, I I think you'll agree with me. You either liked Killing Joke immediately or I'm not going to say all you didn't, but it either got to you immediately or, or, I mean, there wasn't two ways about it. It was was completely black and white. There was no gray area there at all. And as the band developed on, of course, you know, you you either sort of you know you you, I see for me, and I'm 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 sort of babbling and I'm going off on a tangent, but see for me, when I heard that first recording, mm. I uh, turned to red. Uh, uh, I, I, to me, that was such a departure from everything else. There there really wasn't anything else like that at that time. And then the album, of course, it it, mm-hmm. it just was. Uh, it, so many people, I mean, over the years, so many people that I've known in the music business, particularly here in America, mm. have uh, mentioned Killing Joke. I mean, I've got, strangely enough, I've got recordings of radio shows I was doing back at the time where people like Kim Thale from, from Soundgarden, I've got recordings of him where he would call me up weekly and say, play that Killing Joke album again, play it. <laughs> you know, things like that. And I remember talking with a lot of the different artists at the time who were just so heavily influenced by Killing Joke. 
and, and, and but even they didn't quite understand what it was that they were influenced by. Was it <laughs> was it Martin's sort of uh, reggae style dub bass? Yeah. I mean, it was a funky sort of sound that kind of was in contrast to Geordie's guitar. It was like it was very. It was just a, just a mishmash of sounds. My teenage brain couldn't quite process the fact that um, Turn to Red yes. and uh, Dance were the same band. Yes. And I knew they were, but I mean, yes. you know, I mean, but a lot of the bands back then in the post-punk genre were capable of doing one thing brilliantly. But it just, just sounded like a joke to me. Just anything they turned, anything idea they got in the head, took it into the studio, yes. and out came something that was, you know, the second album, what's this for? You know, people, I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, were expecting, you know, uh, the second album to be um, like volumes and hopefully yes. building on it. And then yeah, they yeah. come out with this that's totally yeah. different. You, we've kind of established, you know, they didn't, not one of the members of the band that you could could speak to uh, wanted to talk in the same way as everybody else. And you certainly couldn't get them all together at the same time. No, unfortunately. And, and, and I'm not going to ask you to say who was the easiest to talk to, but I have a sneaking suspicion that you know who was the easiest to talk to <laughs> and who, who was more more able to sort of just go, yeah, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk. So for you, as, as the man that was going to put the book together and you're, you're interviewing these guys, was there a point where you just got, uh, where you said to yourself, I want more information, I'm not getting enough? Just give me a sort of a, a lowdown on, on, on how, it, how it went down for you, just talking to sure. the different members. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'll start with Jazz. Yes. Um, so he was, the, the uh, as, as probably people would expect, he was the final per, 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 uh, group member that I got on the phone. Or yes. Uh, because he was in South America somewhere, and, and like yeah. his, his manager Carlo had to say to him, "Look, you will sit down at this point, this you know, for an hour or whatever." Yeah. Um, and basically, I only got to ask him about three questions. The rest of it was just him. Yes, you know, because he has what he wants to say, and that was that basically. You yeah. know, I did manage to rein him in a few times and just push him a little bit further this way or that way. Yeah, uh, and he did explain because he, the book title was his idea. And essentially ah. saying that um, we've been telling you all these years about all these things that are going to come true, and now they are coming true because they've said, we've told you there'll be a climate catastrophe. We've told you not to believe anything that anyone in power says to you. And he said, all these things are coming to pass now. And he said, it doesn't mean we've, we've won that war, but we'll just keep saying it and keep saying it until we reach other people. Yes. Um Paul was Paul. Uh, I think we were talking about the same person about who was the the easiest to. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. And he was. Um, he just wanted to do it by email, but he was. You know, I asked him some quite searching questions about the when they had dark times uh, after um, Brighton and a thousand. Sorry, now Brighton than a thousand suns, and how things went very awry. But he was very honest about it, and he said, "Well, you know, I might as well get it out of my system now if." if I can. And so he was brilliant with that. He didn't shy away from any questions. He didn't say, prefer not to answer that one. He might have answered it only in a partial way because, you know, he's in the band and he doesn't want to cause fresh ruckus with a certain member of the band, probably. Right. Um, <laughs> Jordy was brilliant. Um, I'd told, I've been told that if you can just get a drink inside him and he'll just say, he'll just come out with the most outlandish stories. And that proved to be absolutely true. Yes. Um, 
and uh, youth was youth with very youth was very reflective. Yes, um, it was hard getting him because he's such a, obviously such a phenomenally busy guy. It was hard for him to nail him down. But once yeah, I, he, was, he was yours, you know. Well, you've, I you've could been, tell you quite a lot. Yes, I could tell you stories about mailing uh, mailing Martin down. Yes, <laughs> I mean that's a, and he doesn't mean to be, um, no. you know, uh, no. not, not in. I mean, he he loves to talk and he loves to chat. Yeah, I I, I can remember going back all oh, back to the early, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, tracking Martin down to for a conversation. And it took like a week, I think, of like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, okay, I'll be, you know, it's, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Let's now talk myself, about... Sorry, go on, sorry. No, no, please, go on, please. No, I was only going to say, I found myself, uh, when we'd met at a date, as in as it were, for Zoom, I found myself sat in front of a blank screen for quite a few times, where he just his time was, you know, taken up by something else, you know. Yes, but I have to say that it was all definitely worth it in the end because he was the one I interviewed most because he kept saying, if you need anything else, just come back to me. So it was great. Well, Martin does like to talk. I mean, once you oh, get him talking, that, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So getting back to the book, yeah. I'm getting back to the other interviews, like the, the, the contemporary, like I just mentioned, Kirk Grandin, for, for example. When you approach people, and let's, let's use Kirk as, a, as, as an example, yeah. Did you just call him up? Did you get his number or something or email and say, how, how did you go about those those connections? Well, I, I sort of like uh, investigated each one that I wanted to speak and I had a list of about 200. I probably got 75 of them in the end, but I thought that was quite a good strike rate. And with Kirk, I had to go through um, um, his publicist. Yes. And when, when the message got to him, then Kirk came straight back to me because yes. I think what it was, I think... Um, the people, the people who I targeted were such big fans and have such stories to tell that they were so pleased that there was a, an outlet for them to say what they thought about this band, which to me was was very gratifying because A, I got the copy from them, but B, I think it was good for them to actually think that the, the band that they had admired so much, they were actually getting an outlet to express themselves about, about yes. how much they'd love them. I mean, yes. the guy who does the, does the, um, the forward... Uh, Billy Gould out of Faith No More. Yes. I pursued him for ages and ages and ages. And eventually, he, he, he just sent me he sent me an email. He just had his email address in it, you know, whatever he put it on Twitter, I think, or something like that for me. And, you know, and that, that was really brilliant, that, because I knew that at least two members of Faith No More were such fabulous fans of Killing Joke. And I thought, I've got to get one of them. I've got to get one of them. And eventually I did, and it was terrific. It took ages to squeeze it out of him. But I didn't tell him was that um, I wanted him as the foreword. So when he su supplied it, which I know is not journalistically good practice, but I got him to speak. And then afterwards I said, Billy, this is fantastic. It's great. Do you mind if I use it as the foreword? And he just backed straight off again. He's going, oh, I don't want to be that high profile in it. You know, he said something like, I've got a slightly awkward relationship with him. I said, well, so is the rest of the planet, you know. So he <laughs> simply went, yes, let's run it, let's do it. I said, brilliant, my day, brilliant. Well, while we're talking about awkward relationships, I have to ask you about, um, I'm, and I will, will tell you straight up front, a friend of mine, known him for many, many years when he was in PIL at one time, oh, Martin yeah. Atkins. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you try to get hold of Martin? I did. I did. Yeah. I found out afterwards because he at first he said yes. Yeah. And I submitted uh, questions to him because he said he just wanted to do by email. I said, that's totally fine. 
and um, he never got back to me. But then yeah. I found out that he was in the process of writing a book of his own about those yes. times. It hasn't yes. come out, but I had to respect him. But I know that Chris Conley, who I know you've had on the yeah. show as well, I sent him similar questions about the time in Damage Manual and um, the other band. And um, he came back to me and he said, if it helps at all with Martin, I've just phoned him to say it's great fun going backwards and thinking about those times and coming up with words about it. And he said, I'm sure he'll um, he'll contribute. But yes. if he had the, the book in his mind already then, I totally thought, well, yes, what can I do? You know, can't, yes. force, can't force Martin to yes. You know what I'd like to do is, as we're talking about a band that you you greatly admire, and I've been a, a big fan of since day mm. one, is to have you choose a piece of music that we can put in as like a like a little oh, interlude yeah. here, and then we'll come back to having some more chats um, about the book. Yeah. Um, mm. No, uh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> no I know, um, I know, I know. Um, well, a song of those that I think is is absolutely immense, but wasn't I didn't think wasn't very arrestingly recorded, and that's the sun goes down. Oh, the sun goes down. Yes. If, if you could find a live version of that, my producer and I will go into my into my archives. We have pretty much everything we want here. Let's do that, and then when we played this piece of music from Killing Joke, I want to talk to you about some of the photographs, in particular. Uh, the gentleman that both you and I know, Mr. Frank Jenkinson, because mm -hmm. I think those photographs are so important. Let's play the music. Killing joke. The sun goes down. This is life elsewhere.
if you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Bryans. He has put together a fabulous book. It really is. Uh, it, it, even if you're not a fan, I'm repeating myself here. Even if you're not a fan of Killing Joke, this is a, a just a fabulous read, and it's got lots and lots of photographs in. A prophecy fulfilled. Pioneers and Revelations is the subtitle here from Chris Bryan's book. It's all about Killing Joke and people giving their their memories, um, people sharing their thoughts, and the band themselves were interviewed for this book. And it really is. I, 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 it's just a terrific read. And thank you so much for sending it to me, Chris. Oh, no problem. Some of the photographs in the book, in the early part of the book, and, and actually throughout the book, but certainly in the early part of the book, are taken by a gentleman that was hanging with the band at the time, friend of, of Brian Taylor, uh, by the name of Frank Jenkinson. Frank wasn't thinking that he was being, taking photographs for, for history. In fact, a lot of these photographs were kept in a cupboard under the stairs. Mm -hmm. And he pulled them out a couple of years back and had them printed up. And they're just, what a fabulous memory. They're fabulous historical documents. Talk to me about getting hold of Frank and, and the photographs that he had. Sure, yeah, sure. I knew of his Killing Joke picture book um, archive because of his um, Facebook page. And in the early days of when I was commissioned to, to do the book, I looked at uh, previous books from the same publisher along similar lines. And there was just a massive deficit of images, especially in the early days of telling the band's history. And I thought, well, in a kind of way, those books were still interesting, but they were killed storm dead, right? for me anyway, yeah. for lack of images. I mean, there are a few images dotted around here and there, but I thought if if I have the, you know, the sort of 78 to 81, and all I'm relying on, very gratefully, but all I'm relying on is the odd instamatic snap from people who have the presence of mind to think this is a fabulous band and I've kept these pictures and I'll send them to you or I'll send you scans of them. So it was relying on chance, basically. And I thought, if I don't get to use Frank's, it's going to make a very arid book. It's going to be very dry. You know, it's going to look yes. not very inviting. So I got in touch with Frank and I interviewed him for the book anyway. Yes. And I said to him, uh, I'll always remember this. It's, it's just one of them, the days when the day when I thought the book would definitely work. And I said to Frank, um, any chance of using any of your um, pictures? And I'll always remember is I think it was a four-word reply. He said, use anything you want. And I thought that, and, and I've kept that that email. I had it ring-fenced and I put guards around it for about six months afterwards because I thought I have to have proof he said that. So I took him at his word. And I thought, you know, I just couldn't believe it. it was like a kid in a sweet shop, basically. He just said, use anything you want. So I did. And then, um, and it made the book really work because they were so fam fab fabulous. It was like it was like gold dust. And he was still uncovering yes. ones that he was yes. still putting up there. And I said, what about these new ones? He said, well, don't use them all because I've got my own little books myself. But you can use three from this, two from a German tour, which are actually taken by Brian. And um, and other gigs where he said, yeah, just use one from that. I said, well, that's absolutely brilliant. But the biggest surprise I think he had was on the day it was released, the book, I went to meet him because we only live a couple of miles from each other. Right. Yeah, I went to meet him for a drink. And we're in a club in Ealing in West London. 
and we swapped books because he just released the Killing Joe Berlin book. Yes. And I just, just I had a copy of this in my hand and, uh, and we swapped over it. And he said, this looks great. And he went from the back to the front. But the closer we got to the front, he was just seen, just said, Frank Jenkinson, Frank Jenkinson, Frank yes. Jenkinson. Frank yes. Jenkinson. And I thought he's going to blow up in a minute. He said, bloody hell, you used them all. I said, well, you did say. And then he went, yeah, it looks good, though, doesn't it? He said, you owe me one on that one. And I've spent the last year, <laughs> in, probably in pints of Guinness, trying yeah. to make a bit of make up for it. Because he meant the book, as far as I was concerned. I think yes. the two most important things that weren't the words were Frank's early pictures, and everyone's pictures, to be honest, but especially yes. for that early part, and Mike Coles' cover. Yes. You know, because he did the cover. And, we, and anyone who, I can't remember who said it, said, it said that the most important thing about a book is its cover, because it just attracts the attention. That is, I think that's absolutely true. And then when you got inside, you got Frank's pictures as well. So I, I couldn't have been happier. Just everything fell into place at the right yeah. time, which I'm grateful. Yeah. <laughs> great stuff. Great story. You know, I was very fortunate to, and uh, unfortunately, you, I, I don't think you ever met him or spoke to him. But Brian Taylor became a very good friend of mine over the years. And his relationship with the band is, I think, if it's not well documented, I think it's well known that there was not mm. a lot of love lost. Yeah. Um, even though there were times when he spoke so highly of of the band, I, I think he loved the band in 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 so many ways. But he's absolutely, <laughs> I'm not going to say hated them, but I think there was they there were things that happened that he didn't like. Yeah. Yeah. But over the years, as I said, I stayed I stayed in contact with Brian. And we, we would talk, he, he was living in Turkey at the time, London and Turkey. Mm -hmm. And we would talk late into the night, my time here in America. And I wish that I had taped a lot of those conversations. Mm -hmm. I did tape some with his permission, of course, and I did have him on my show. Um, he had a lot of things that I think would have would have been <laughs> interesting for this book, it, it, yes. but an alternate take, of course. But I think certainly very interesting. I was just I was that's a, a lead up to say I was very fortunate to be in London at the time or sadly, I should say, not fortunate, but sadly at the time when Brian died, unfortunately, yeah. way too early. And of course, I went to his to his funeral and. Yeah, that's a that's a whole nother story. But uh, too bad that I think he would be very proud of you of of, of the book. I think he that's would. Kind of yeah, I think he would. I think he would, because I think you've you've given um, you've given an honest appraisal of the band and the music and the, and the characters involved, and that that I feel is is not an easy thing to do, and you've managed to do that by being selective of, of who you have giving their accounts, which mm -hmm. leads me to ask you, Chris, about the editing process for you, about mm -hmm. you must have collated a lot of information, a lot of quotes. What was the editing process like for you? For me, that was the central part of the, uh, of the production of it from the, from the text side of things, because I wanted it to seem like in in the early pages where you were just sat in the middle with all the band or all the fans around you and they're all chipping in with comments and things like that. 
obviously it doesn't come out like it's not like that when you've done the interviews it's just a monolith of information so that took me a long time to create a narrative that going through that seemed to flow from one event to another um so that 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 was a lengthy process that i tried to like i said tried to top and tail each chapter with the band because i thought that their word is law in 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 that sort of thing so if people could see that the band is starting off a chapter then it's all the fantastic uh, information from the fan base and contemporaries and then uh, finishing with a band now that took a hell of a heck of a lot of time that um I, th- I think i spent probably six weeks just solely on that to to, to get the flow of it right yeah yes. otherwise it was it, in the, some of the other books in the in the series they've just put huge chunks of text without parsing it up and play, saying, well, that paragraph there will work here. This paragraph will work next chapter. They were just like huge lumps of, of text. And it just went, the, the chronology was all over the place. Because yeah. I just wanted it to go from what they said, what, what the chapter headings say, 79 to 82. I didn't want anything from 83 or 78 in there. In there you know, I just wanted ah, the whole yes. yeah, yeah. period yeah. specific. And it took a long time, but and there were certain areas where I still think I didn't get it. But um, that's that was the aim anyway. Chris, was there anyone or a, a period or just something that you wanted to talk about? You wanted to get into the book, but you couldn't. You couldn't arrange that. You couldn't find the personal. You sounds a bit oblique, but was it was there? Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was. I wanted to because because it was an official book. This was uh, a few people who got in touch with me uh, from the fan base at the start, said I could tell you a few stories. And I said, well, just be aware, I'm not here for mudslinging. I'm not here right. for, you know, for stuff I can't confirm that, you, that this person might think is true, something, you know. So there were a few times where I had to just um, heavily edit um, contributions. But I wanted, I did want to delve a little bit more into the, some of the dark uh, incidents that went on around the time of Outside the Gate after mm. right, A Thousand Sons. And I tried to, without putting someone's nose out of joint in, in the band, because then they might just say, if I pushed it too far, they might say, well, I'm not contributing at all now, you know. So yeah. And yeah. I'd lose everything they'd said. So I was trying to cajole people uh, into saying something about that time. But they spoke about it very much in generalities. And I just got the idea that. Uh, I didn't well, well, I got the idea that they didn't want to go there, and that's fine, got to respect that. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to push it too far because everyone's been nice as pie to me, and I don't want the, the I don't I don't want to be another casualty of the of the um, reputation that they have, you know, yes. like, you know, that sort of thing, you know. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to go where they didn't want to go, if you see what I mean. No, I I completely understand, and I think you make the point very, very well. And thank you for answering that. I was just thinking, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yes, it would have been great if you could have had Brian Taylor. It would have also been terrific if you had got John Peel. You know, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Because Peel, I remember talking to Peel. I'll tell you a little story, which I've told on the air a number of times. I, I was living in Seattle, lived in Seattle for a long time. So I knew all the bands in Seattle that eventually became labeled grunge and sub pop records asked me if I would send, they knew that I knew John and asked me if I would send a package of records over to John. And I did. John was so enthralled. He was a lot of those bands 
uh, out of Seattle at the time on his show and was playing them night after night and called me up. John, we used to we used to exchange letters and he called me up one day out of the blue and said, what is this? What is this amazing? <laughs> you know, tell me more about it. Send me more stuff. Mud, he, lo- he loved Mud Honey. There was a band called Tad. Of course, there was Nirvana. And the, and it, but anyway, long story short, he was just he was crazy about what was coming out of Seattle. And that sort of spurred everything on. And it's a, it's a long story. But he also, in our conversations, would talk about his favorite bands uh, 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 overall, overall out of you know the many years he'd been doing radio, just like I had. Yeah. And I always remember him just going on and on and mm-hmm. on about Killing Joke, about how he just thought this band was phenomenal and thought they had huge, huge future ahead of them. And of course, he was right. Mm. But his enthusiasm was was uh, that was the thing that I always liked about John that his enthusiasm was genuine. It was it was a serious you know it was serious when he was oh, enthusiastic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah that so, just came with everything, wasn't it? Everything he did. I mean, I was I used to avidly tape his shows at night just in case there was something I'd missed. Sure. And then the festive fifties. I know sometimes yes. they didn't change as much as they should have done. But, right. Um, but absolutely fantastic. Good memories. Uh, I'm sorry I went off on a bit of a tangent there. No, that's fine. Yeah. Not at all. A Prophecy Fulfilled is the title of the book. It's by Chris Bryans, who's my guest. Was there anything, and, I'm, and this is a, a curiosity to me, it's my mind going off in, in tangents here, but was there anything that you wanted to get documented was there anything that you knew that you thought you knew that you wanted to figure out that wanted to delve into that you you weren't able to was that was the did that come up at all i wasn't i wasn't given a blank no to anything you know to open a pandora's box of a box as such um uh there was um a clarification and a slightly different angle to the famous story about jazz going to the um, um, melody maker offices uh, when he'd had a he'd had a bad review or someone had said something about him in the previous week's issue and Mark Perry um, who was the journalist who originally brought the story um, he gave me a slightly augmented version this time around where he'd remembered some extra things I can't remember exactly what they were but they ah. just added more flavour to the story about yes. when Jazz invaded the offices and he, he had uh, maggots and flies and <laughs> knives and uh, scissors and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which probably yeah. casting a load of spells on people as well. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. That was the one where, where I found out more than, than uh, I knew. But I don't think it was ever... Maybe I just selected my questions without treading too much on areas where I thought I might um, alienate people. Right. I did. There were some things that the fan base submitted to me. Like I said, I had to either reject or liaise with the fan uh, person involved and say, "Look, I think this is revealing too much. You know, too much, too much of a personal nature. Like, um, can't remember addresses or family uh, life, and ah. things like that, which I thought were outside the remit. Basically, you know, they might be all right if you were sort of National Enquirer sort of thing, you know, and just finding out everything you can." Um, but generally speaking, I kept it to the music. I would have liked to have gone, if we could have had an even bigger book, I'd like to have gone into more of the personal projects, especially of, of youth. But 
if you try and do that with youth, it's a whole book on its own. It certainly is. Yes, yeah. yes. And what is the, the, the oddest thing, really, and, I, and he would agree with, with us on, on this, is that youth was the wayward soul at one time. Mm. Youth was the mm. one, you know, in the early days, you know, was spotted walking naked down King's Road or, or, or whatever the, whatever the crazy yeah. story was. Yeah. You know, youth was, was considered to be the least one to succeed. But, of course, youth has gone on to work with Paul McCartney and God knows who else, you know. Yeah. And he says, he says quite candidly, he says, without those problems that he had in the early 80s, you know, like a, just being so out of his mind that he could hardly play on what's this for. Yes. And then having an, later, 35 years later, having an argument with the producer, sorry, producer of what's this for, um, uh, saying that the producer was wrong. It was a youth that's having all the problems from the, year, the album after. And, and, and the producer, Nick Lawney, said, well, how would I have known about that? I was completely straight. You were out of your head, something, you know. Yes. Um, but he says without those problems, he wouldn't have had that appreciation in the music that he had, which he thinks, or he says, and he absolutely is adamant about it, that meant he had the changed personality to be the person who could be that uber producer. So he said yes. it took me a long time to put himself, himself back together, but when he did... He was a much improved human being and, you know, with more insights into what he wanted to do, really. You know, with the um, Beatles documentary that is mm. airing right now, and I'm sure it's airing in the UK as mm. well, the, the, the Let It Be six-hour mm. trilogy, everybody now is, is saying if only every band had cameras in the studio when they were rehearsing and recording. If only that was possible. <laughs> the strange thing is, is that I'm not sure we would get anything that we would really want to see. I, because even watching the Beatles documentary, there's a lot of downtime, isn't there? There's a lot of hurry up and wait. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I think that's true of any bands. What we do have, of course, is some wonderful photographs that, that, Frank Jenkinson has taken, which some of them are in the studio and some of them yeah. are in rehearsal, which is which is terrific. Chris, was there a point when you were putting the book together, collating all the information? And as we all were already established, you it's a lot of work. People, I don't know that people realizing doing a book like this is it's a lot of slogging work, isn't it? You've well, really it is, got to yeah. yeah, yeah. I because I'm from the north of England where we all take the mickey out of each other all the time yes um people were saying oh you're doing this book about killing joke and they're, they're all the same age as me so whether they liked them or not some did some weren't that bothered but they all knew of them and um they behind what i didn't realize was behind my back they're all saying to each other isn't that typical chris gets a job doing that and all he has to do is wait for these people to send the words in and he doesn't have to do anything Okay, well, it's a bit more than that, actually, you know, but, but they wouldn't be convinced of it. But no. yeah, I just, it was it was just after lockdown came in when I started working it. So I'm freelance. So my work dried up completely. Right. Um, so I, I didn't have anything else, which in a way, way was a blessing in disguise because then I could spend six, seven months working on the book and nothing else whatsoever. You know, because I couldn't go out, couldn't socialise, couldn't do anything. I just got up, sat where I am now and just uh, hammered away at it. And so it was great. It was, the, it was the best adventure I've ever had without actually going anywhere, you know, so I didn't yeah. move from this spot. But again, in a kind of way, I don't want to say lockdown was good because a lot of people have had 
terribly traumatic experiences. But for me, it worked. So it just meant that I could focus on one thing and one thing alone, which was brilliant for me. Well, you just said something which I want to tap into. You said it was the best adventure you've ever had. And, and I think for me, Chris, this comes across as something that you thoroughly enjoyed putting together. I, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that you really, really loved doing this book and putting this oh, book together. 100%. 100%. You know, the, the number of people, because obviously I've, I've been, you know, on Facebook and, and I've been on the message boards that still kind of crawl along. Um, but I never really popped my head above the parapet. Yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't, because there's, I don't know if you know, there's about five, six, seven killing joke uh, different groups on Facebook because none of them get on with each other. They've all got right. each other. Yes, yes, like yes. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because I didn't belong to any one group, um, I didn't come with any baggage. And I think that helped because, like, a couple of guys who were extremely experienced and very close to the band, they said, well, watch out because it's very factional. And, um, you know, people have tried to do a book before, haven't succeeded, have been stymied by this or hampered by that. But because I came in sort of a fresh face, if you can be fresh faced in 53, um, it helped. You know, so it meant that, you know, I wasn't in one camp or another. So I was a kind of neutral entity. Right. So yes. no one could say to me that, oh, you're part of that camp or you're part of that camp. I just said, no, I'm just here. If you want to contribute, you know, I'm not going to, uh, be partial to one faction or another. I just want to make the best book possible. So in that way, I got a very easy ride. Everyone was very happy to contribute to to, to the book, uh, thinking that there wouldn't be any prejudice shown to their contributions. So yeah, with that out of the way, well, without the uh, fear of you know offending someone, it was just the best fun, just the best fun. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think you've achieved what you set out to do. And you I, I, you seem to me you've covered all bases and everybody should be happy with it. Uh, oh, I no, certainly. No. Yeah, I certainly am. It, it, it really is. It's a terrific read. A Prophecy Fulfilled and the subtitle, which I rather like, Pioneers and Revelations. The author and the man that's put this together is Chris Bryans. Chris has been my guest for the last hour. Chris, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Absolutely, my pleasure. A very big thank you to my guest, Chris Bryans. The link to his book on Killing Joke, A Prophecy Fulfilled, is up at lifeelsewhere.co. Unfortunately, and sadly, it seems to happen like this. Just as we had wrapped the production for this edition of Life Elsewhere, news came in that the legendary Jamaican bass player, Robbie Shakespeare, had passed. Best known as one half of the reggae rhythm section and production duo Sly and Robbie, along with drummer Sly Dunbar. Now, he made scores of crucial reggae recordings. Shakespeare was consistently in high demand. He played with everyone, from Bob Dylan to Mick Jagger, Grace Jones, Sinead O'Connor, Carly Simon, Jackson Brown, oh, and so many more. Robbie Shakespeare's style of playing was undeniably influential, and I know that Martin, youth glover, bass man for Killing Joke, will certainly agree. I had the good fortune to interview Robbie back in the late 70s at the notorious Edgewater Hotel in Seattle. Look it up. 
That recording, along with a few other important treasures with noted artists from that period, were regrettably destroyed in a flooded basement. A lesson learnt. Always make a duplicate copy of every interview you do. But I can recall that Mr. Shakespeare was a friendly, happy soul who loved to talk about music. Oh, did he like to talk? There are so many Robbie Shakespeare recordings in my library. Picking just one was not easy. Here then is Robbie Shakespeare in fine style on Heartbeat Dub. This is by Sly and Robbie and the Revolutionaries from the 1975 album Hardcore Dub. Rest in peace, Mr. Shakespeare. have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O. Mm-hmm.